All right, it's DT Systems, dog tested and dog tough. You know, we like that dog in them, baby. We've been using the H2O1820. Over the last several months, we've been playing with this unit. Our friends at Standing Stone Kennels, Ethan and Kat, they've been using it for years, and we've been playing with it. We really like it. I think for the dog trainer, the hunter, and the guy or gal who's training their dog to get ready for duck season, we'll really enjoy the 1820. Super reliable, super consistent, great unit for you and your dogs. H2O1820. Dog tested. Dog. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. Force fetch. What is it? It's super intimidating to so many people, yet it's not that difficult. I built a step-by-step process that helps you understand it. You and your dog can be successful in it, and it takes the intimidation away of the process so that you and your dog can get to your goals. That's what it's built for. Let me teach you how I do it so that you and your dog can do it. Different breeds, different personalities, problem solving, and more. Check it out. Links in the description. The Force Fetch Course. Baby. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles, baby. I'm really excited about tonight's episode. With us tonight is Pat Nolan. Pat's a renowned retriever trainer. He works with the military, training dogs we're not even allowed to talk about. And he has a program called The Retriever from the Pup and Up. And I bought it. I watched it. I made my employees watch it. It helps develop a puppy to the nth degree. So I'm really excited to talk about that and his background and all the cool stuff that he has done in his career. Pat, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Do me a favor. Do a little bit more deep dive on you. Tell everybody about yourself. Well, Bob, Kevin, thanks for having me. I, uh, I'm excited to be participating. I, I'm a dog trainer. I first trained dogs for hire in 1975. I started working in a guard dog company. After I got out of the army, I was in Denver, Colorado, and I started working in a guard dog company. And I went from there to Schutz Hunt Sport, where we trained tracking, obedience, and protection. And they call it IGP and IGO, or da, da, da. I think it's IGP now, but uh, this same basic structure, tracking, obedience, and protection. I was young. Seven, I got out of the Army when I was 19. I enlisted when I was 17. I got out when I was 19. And I was trying to figure out how I could make a living training dogs. I, I didn't want to get a real job. I wanted to train dogs <laughs> for a living. <laughs> and, and I know it's turned into a real job, but uh, yeah. but it's one that I've enjoyed and loved. So I, when I was trying to figure out, I was just pursuing dog training opportunities and dog knowledge and I was going to seminars, uh, any place I could go. Um, 
when I bumped into people that knew more about dogs than me or had done different types of dogs, I trained with them as best I, as much as they'd let me. And in a seminar in a Bill Keeler seminar in Allentown, Pennsylvania, I met a fellow, Mike Jones, and Mike and Bill told me that you could earn an honest living training retrievers, that the uh, field trial dogs all in all were good dogs, good people, and they sent their dogs out for training. And they were right on all three counts. So I I got a book and started reading. I think it was James Lamfrey and started reading the book and then trained, tried to use what I knew about obedience work and protection and tried to plug that directly into the field. And then I went and saw a field event. And the uh, first time I saw a derby, I thought to myself, if I had five years, I could get a dog ready for this. Um, <laughs> but uh and so I started going out with local retriever people, throwing birds for them. I've worked trials, threw birds at trials. I had uh, learning bird placement. And I had an electronic collar. I got my first electronic collar, I think, somewhere around 1978, uh, maybe 79, somewhere in there. It was uh, Tritronics A170. It had one button. It was red. And when you pushed it, they said, I, 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 it was, uh, it was really high pressure and, un and unpleasant. Um, it's difficult to, it was difficult to force for desired behaviors with it. It was better suited to punishing undesired behaviors. And, um, of course, Rex Carr figured out a way or figured out a system for pushing for desired behaviors mm -hmm. and, I had, uh, when I was going to field trials, I met Rick and Patty Roberts. When, when I was at the field trials, I was always, uh, I, I never was an amateur. I never uh, participated in amateur until just recently. I was running some dogs for my wife. Um, she was had a judging assignment and I filled in and handled some dogs. But bef when I ran field trials originally, I was a professional trainer and, and I, always sought the company of other professionals. I was trying to find out, you know, I'd see somebody's dogs were hitting that short retired that I couldn't get. And I said, how'd you do that? <laughs> I can't get a dog to stop there. Y'all your stop. How'd you do that? And um, most of the guys and gals that were professional trainers were kind enough to share information. And I, I, I learned a lot and spent, I invested a lot of time in trying to get better at learning those systems. I learned the Originally, I learned the e-collar system that was developed from Rex Carr. I learned that through Rick and Patty Roberts. And and then I learned a lot about bird placement and training dogs from Hugh Arthur and uh, Bill Eckett, Wayne Curtis, Pat Burns, yeah. uh, Mike Lardy. I'm, the, the guys of the day that, that I was competing against were, were uh, all kind enough to share information. That's so cool. It's definitely... Uh... For me, those are like everybody's the idol, right? You know, I grew up reading their books and DVDs and, you know, just being a sponge of what they provided and you got to hang out with them and get the in-person real deal. Me too. <laughs> you know, again, I, yeah, I, I loved it. They were my idols. I think you guys were making a living training retrievers, tra training dogs. They were successful at trials and uh, I emulated them. I learned from them. Uh, and started plugging it in. So what I knew. Let me ask you this. So if you did you have a hunting background? Did did you grow up with this at all? Or it just was a I think I can make a living doing this. I love dog training, so this is gonna be my avenue. 
it was the more the closer to the second. I, I didn't hunt much. Uh, and nobody in my family hunted. I did a little bit of deer hunting as a kid, but when I started training retrievers, I realized first I said, well, I got to have some hunting stories to share with the guys. I was training some hunting dogs, hoping to train. I said, well, I got to know what the dogs do. I got to have stories to share. So I thought I'd start hunting a little. And, and I realized to train the dogs, I needed to shoot. And so I started shooting clay birds until I could, that one shot, just a going away shot, just set that up and just until I was bored to tears, you know, and then we shot birds for the dogs. And, uh, and then I fell in love with it. I, I really enjoyed duck hunting and I hunted, I would hunt before I had a truck full of dogs. I would hunt a couple hours every morning and then go train dogs the rest of the day. Um, but as you know, that's, that's hard. <laughs> yeah. I don't like yeah. get up that early every day anymore. <laughs> yeah. I know. So, and I, I fell in love with the duck hunting and from the dog train, I wanted to train dogs and, uh, I just, I didn't care much what the venue was. I just wanted to train dogs. When I started training retrievers, I quickly realized, and and I believe to this day that I think it's the most technically challenging dog sport uh, because, uh, you know, the the complexities of the tasks that, that they ask of the dogs. Uh, so it was, I like the challenge. I like to try to learn new stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So back in the day, the means and methods to get a dog from a puppy to a master hunter or a field champion, those tactics still like a lot of Rex cars still ingrained in us. Um, Mike Lardy still ingrained in us, but methods have, I wouldn't say evolved because that means that that stuff stone age. It still has so much relevance, I believe. Um, but there are different things. And I feel like you are one of the guys in our industry that is on the forefront of dissecting how a dog learns and building a, a finished product that is just a little bit different. If that I'm trying to be eloquent yeah. about it, but your your means and methods have evolved into your style, if you will. And so maybe let's talk about you know, that process of, hmm, I wonder if we can do this different or better. Yeah. Um, I My training has evolved and I can point to a, a big turning, a turning point, a specific incident that pushed me to change. And let me say first that there are very many very talented trainers involved in pursuing hunt tests and field trials. And they, I, I learned from everybody I competed against and, and that would train with me. And on, in the beginning, I was a student of other methods mm -hmm. and I studied hard and I worked hard at getting better and better at the systems that I saw, at the system that I saw. And I took pieces that made sense. Um, if things didn't make sense to me, I didn't use them. When I first got an electric collar, I used it for punishment only. And then I trained with some retriever people for a couple of years, maybe two years throwing for them before. And they were teasing me one day. So, you know, you could use, I was going out in the field, catching a dog. I was training a dog to handle without an electric collar. Um, 
And he said, well, you could do that faster with a knee collar. And finally, I said one day, I said, well, I do have a knee collar. I said, but I don't know how to use it here. <laughs> right. And and not to say that retriever trainers don't know how to use collars, but the people I was training with, the way they were using collars didn't make sense to me. So, you know, I was learning about bird placing from them. Anyway, I did learn about a collar program that made sense. And I learned about an approach that made sense. Um, and as uh, I'm going to back up to a point in time that started my, my evolution in training. And I was, I had a group of young dogs that I had a truck full of dogs. I was making a living running field trials at the time. And I didn't advertise the retriever field trial news. And people seeing me on the weekend were the only advertising I did. So, you know, I was placed and winning enough that I had a truck full of dogs. And not bragging, just a fact of life. I fed my family. And yeah. um, so, but I had a group of young dogs and I was complaining to myself, oh, these dogs don't like to train. And, you know, I had five or six young dogs. I got better dogs. And, you know, you don't get good dogs till you win. You can't win without good dogs. And a little pity party for myself. Sure. And at, at the same time, I was flying a hawk and I had I had had a falconry permit for a couple of years and been flying red tail hawks. And we would trap a hawk in the fall and I'd train it uh, for sometimes six or eight weeks and then take it hunting, hunt it through the end of the winter. And then when I go south in the winter in the spring, I'd fatten it up and turn it loose um, no way. down south. So I trained a number of hawks and some people you could keep the bird. But I chose not to because I had more fun training the bird than just hunting them. And I know they got better and better with every year of hunting, but I wanted to train another bird. And so I kept swapping out birds. Took me six or eight weeks to get a bird ready to fly them loose. And the particular time that I was wrestling with these young Labradors that they just don't like training. And um, I was... I had been training this young bird and at this time when I was training the bird, instead of going duck hunting in the morning, I'd train the bird in the morning and then I'd train retrievers the rest of the day. Cool. So I'd had this bird about two weeks and I realized I could fly him free. And I'm not going to say that's a record or anything, but for me, it was a record. I flew him two. I'd had him two weeks trapped as an adult from the wild, trained him two weeks and I turned him loose. He flew up in a tree. I called him and he came back. I oh, turned him man. loose. He flew up in a tree and I called him. He came back. And so he was ready to start hunting. And I was walking to put him back. I was, he had him, it was on my fist. I was going to put him away in the bird pen. And I was thinking, you know, I'm a bad mamma jamma. I have <laughs> trained this wild animal. And the closer I got to putting him away, the worse I felt. I thought there's no hawk born that cares about anything except killing to eat and reproducing. And yet this bird, this wild bird would come to me in two weeks off leash. And I had Labradors in training, some of them for two months, that they're bred selectively to want to work with a human being. And I had been working with some of them for two months. And the only reason some of them came was because I could make them. Yeah. And I thought, what have I done wrong? I've got a wild animal that wants to come when I call him. And these Labradors, I've taught them not to like training. Now, 
you know, I mean, they weren't horrible. They're, you could start to unburge, you do more marks when you get through basics and their attitude would come up. But I, I taught my basic skills very mechanically. Come here, reel them in, sit down, you know, force fetch, all that, but very mechanically. Mm-hmm. And then I'd throw bumpers at the end of the session and stuff. And, and uh, so that was a real turning point. I started thinking about what in the world was I doing different with this bird? That, that I could do with my dogs. And the uh, first thing was I was using food. Uh, I used to make fun of food trainers. Now I am one. Um, and, and certainly food is not the answer. But I learned several things and I finally boiled it down to a couple of main pieces of information that I took from that bird. One, I can't make the hawk do anything. And it's freeing. For me, when I realized I could not make my dogs do anything, I used to think, I'm going to make him get off that point, get in the water. I'm going to make him do a channel blind. I can't make a dog do anything. And and I just, I accept that. And it's freeing for my dogs to say, hey, do whatever you want. Consequences. And and uh, if in training, he's getting birds and he's liking that. If he does the wrong thing that I don't want in training, he's not getting birds. He's not making progress. He doesn't like that. As long as I control the consequences, consistently control the consequences, we're both better off at the end of the day. doesn't matter whether he did it right or wrong in training. We're both better off at the end of the day. So, one, I can't make him do anything. Two, I train and drive now where with the bird, I would never turn him loose unless he wanted something. I couldn't offer him sex, but I could control food <laughs> for him. You know, there's only two things they want. They want to eat and reproduce. Sure. And and I couldn't, I didn't have a female for him. So I, I, I control food um, or his opportunity to kill for food. So, uh, and I realized that I would never turn him loose unless he really wanted something. And translating to the dogs, I make sure that I have something that dog wants, whether it's a bumper, a tug, the chance to bite a human being, a fresh shot flyer, whatever it is. And I want him to know I have what you want. Let me show you what you need to do to get it. Mm-hmm. Now, if if the dog has this deep seated desire or drive for something to possess something, and we take him out to train and he knows what he wants is available. If we are not directly connecting the things we're asking him to do with the, what he wants, if we're not connecting what he, we ask him to do with what he wants, he perceives everything we're asking him to do is just getting in the way of getting what he wants. Will you stop this crap and get out of the way? Let me get the bird. Like my poor little Labrador's, you know, God, would you stop this obedience and get out of the way and let me retrieve? You want the bumper? I want you to have the bumper sit. Okay, boom, produce the bumper. So we have to connect what they want with the things we want. That's training and drive, I call it. Um, It's not mechanical. I'm not going to place him to sit necessarily. Although I do place him to sit. They do learn from us moving them, physically manipulating them. But when I can get him to want to do the things I want him to do because it leads to the retrieve. Right. It's easier. I mean, it's, it's so much easier. They learn faster. They retain more when they're training and drive. So that, that is one part that I'd like to do a deeper dive on 
the development of training and drive, how to create that without letting them get too too high. So still being level-headed enough to comprehend. Um, yeah. And then like harnessing it and harnessing it is probably not the right term because they're doing it. It's their idea if I'm yeah. picking up yeah. the pieces. Yeah. Um, yes. And the, the best description I've ever heard of training and drive came from a retriever book that was written in 1876. It was by Bernard Waters. Uh, John Cavanaugh was a was a good amateur trainer and uh, interesting fella here on the East Coast. And he's an untimely early death from a heart attack, I think. And but anyway, one time at a field trial, he mentioned that there was a description of force fetch in this book that was published in the 1800s. And I, the way I remember the story, it may not be true, but this is the way I remember it, that this happened before the Internet. And my friend, Mike Jones, and I, we went to the Library of Congress and photocopied the book. And so we found the book, the Library of Congress photocopied it. And there is a section on force fetch. And in the 1876, he was get, describing a force fetch that is very much like force fetch today. Same basic steps. Now, the, ref, the application of pressure is a little refined, but same basic steps. You get him to accept something. You get him to hold it. You get him to reach out for it. Then you put those two together and he's reaching out and holding. And it's the same way today. And when he was describing it, he didn't say, oh, this is revolutionary new. What Look what I've discovered. He just said, this is how it's done. So it was like common knowledge in 1800s, force fetch, So which would intrigue me. But while I was reading that book for that little tidbit, I bumped into something he said in there. And this is the uh, pretty close to exact quote. Much of what we ask of the dog in training is mere drudgery. Yet that same dog will expand, expend endless energy in the pursuit of gain. His best work comes when we so seamlessly blend the two, when he cannot tell where one ends and the other begins. So when I say come to me, it's the pursuit of gain. When I say sit, it's the pursuit of gain. When I say go, it's the pursuit of game. If we can directly tie the things we were asking him to the pursuit of game, that's what he wants. It's easier to get him. It's easier to get him to do what he wants. And they are happy. Yeah. Yeah. Be, because it's all pursuit. There's no reason. Doug shouldn't come when I call him just as fast and just as hard as when he's hunting a, a mark. If they both lead to birds, if they both lead to the retrieve, there's no reason he shouldn't. And you asked about um, the containing the excitement or channeling or harnessing. Yep. Go on. Um, you've seen red-tailed hawks sitting on a telephone pole. Mm -hmm. They're frozen sometimes. They're just leaning over and staring and waiting. And uh, that bird is in drive. If it's the bird that, you know, where he's leaning over, he's frozen, he's staring at something on the ground. And he's 100% in drive. He knows I could die if I don't kill this thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not it's not a game he's playing. It's not, gee, I'd like to do this. He knows I could die if I don't kill this. But he's found the best way to kill it is to wait. Let the mouse take a few more steps, a few more steps, a few more steps. When he's too far from cover, boom, you nail it. The lion, they don't just 
pursue everything as soon as they see it, or the cheetahs, you know, just direct pursuit of everything they see. Cubs do that. But when they grow up, they stalk, they take their time, they wait. And when everything's just right, boom, they go. So the dog sitting still on the line, he could, the dog jumping up and down, he's, ha, 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 ha. He's not just in drive. He just hadn't been explained to him. Sure. You don't get to retrieve much when you do that. We're explained to him in a way he understands, you know, mm-hmm. he believes deep inside. And when we're telling him, sit, 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 stop, sit, sit, you know, all that stuff. He thinks we're just trying to keep him from getting to the bird. Right. If your dog wants something and we're not connecting what he wants with what we're asking of him, he just believes we're trying to stop him from getting it. That's why they don't sit still because he thinks, ah, you're just trying to keep me from getting that mark. That's right. But when like the hawk, when he learns, I kill more when I sit still quietly, then it's easier to get him to sit still. So that's training and drive, connecting what he really wants with the behaviors that we're asking for. So how would you go about, so I, I, I purchased your pup and up program. Um, my employees are all following it, looking, watching it. You know, we're having discussions about it. Um, and so one comment I want to make is in like your opening introduction, if you will, you go, I'm not a scientist, but here's what I've learned over the years. Da, 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 da. To me, the definition of a scientist is someone who is continuously studying and perfecting and learning and growing in their field and tweaking things and, and creating hypothesis and, and then proving it right. You are a hundred percent a dog scientist mm-hmm. in the training methodologies and, and how their brains work and how to get them to, to do what you want in a positive way, really. Well, I would accept that then. Thank you. Um, if that's the, if that's your definition of scientist, I would accept that as a scientist. <laughs> Encyclopedia okay. like of Bob. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Um, um, b- before we dig I too, have... too much further, I'm sorry, Pat. Can we dig into what the Puppin' Up program is? Because yeah, we, actually, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but. We will. I would love his, I would love his answer though on. Well, okay. Like, yeah. Like containing, like, so now we're going to back up in a minute to go over the Puppin' Up program, but to touch on that, like, I guess where I was going with it in the program, you're taking an eight to 12 week old puppy, the very pivotal time of brain development, their brains, like a sponge in the wild, they would die if they don't learn to survive. So they're, they're in tune with everything going on and, and learn at a great rate. And the things that you're working on with those puppies or that puppy in particular is I'm air quoting everyone easy. Everyone should be able to do this. Every puppy can do this. And you're molding these things that the dog doesn't even know it's doing technically in the beginning into the end product, which is a steady dog, a compliant dog, a happy dog, a drivey dog. But that process, I would ask selfishly, what do we do to to chain it towards the end, right? Like now we're throwing live flyers and he had learned this whole time to sit still. And how do we kind of jump that gap of puppy to consequences maybe, or what are those consequences um, so that they learn this is right 
and they they've known it's right for a very long time, but then they make a wrong. How do we handle those things? Um, well, we don't jump a gap. We make little teeny steps. We step stone. Talking about the steady part. When we have the little puppy, and if you just imagine, if you've in the program, we put a treat on a cup and we hold the puppy back and they line out and they eat the treat off the cup. Happens once or twice, they start to understand, hey, there's dinner over there. And when you're holding him, he says, you're keeping me from getting what I want. But if you hold him just a moment till he, you see him, uh, he relaxes and then you let him go. Now he sees struggling. If we release him when he's struggling, he believes that's what I need to do to make him let go of me. So instead of he's struggling, ah, 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 we just wait. And when he relaxes, you let him go. Now he learns like the hawk. I kill more when I'm quiet than I'm steady. Later on, he's we're throwing some marks. We can make him sit on the pallet a little bit, you know, and you have a leash. If he throw the mark and he jumps off, he he's on the leash. So he, he's not successful going. You get him back up there, sit down and you throw a mark. And he, when he says, when he waits, you let him go. So it happens a few times. And he says, Oh, I still have to wait, relax. And then he will send me. Mm -hmm. And the, one of the, biggest consequences that we can use effectively in young dog training. And by young dog, I mean, probably up to, well, till we stop training them is yeah. to control their access to reward, mm -hmm. control their access to reward. So uh, when he's all ramped up on the line, if we send him, he understands that's what I need to do to make you send me. We just, we just stop, get him quiet. He's got to quiet down. Then you release him. And think about head swinging. There's three birds are going to be thrown. He knows three birds are going to be thrown. He sees guns if you're doing visible gun tests. You throw one mark and he moves his head to then look to the next one. If we throw it, he says, he files out away. I moved my head and I made them throw that mark. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I say, okay, I'm going to make him wait 30 seconds. So now I make him wait 30 seconds. And at 33 seconds, he throws his head. And I say, well, that's long enough. I mean, 30 seconds, that's a long time. You'll never have to wait that long in, in the trial. But he still understands. I turned my head and I made them throw that mark. Right. So we just have to control what we're doing. Um, do I do use pressures with dogs. I do use leash pressures, choke chain pressures. I use electronic collar pressures. Uh, but the better I have understood channeling the dog's desire into the work, the better I have understood how to connect his behavior to the reward, the less pressure I've needed to use to get the same control. Lead. Mm, you thought I was going to say bismuth. I switched it up on you. Hey, get you and your buddies prepared for duck season, just like you're preparing your dog. Seven and a half by Kent. 
go to the clay bird course, go to sporting clay course, get right so that you can knock more birds down with that booze move this duck season. Hey, it's not only the food that fuels the truck of lone duck, but we also worry about that gut health. Sometimes the dogs get a little bit of rumbling in the tummies, and I like to help them out get all balanced with this product that Purina provides called Fortiflora basically a probiotic and you sprinkle a little bit of these pouches on the dog's food so for instance if i'm driving to a hunt test and they're rattling around on the trailer and you know sometimes their stomachs can get a little upset from stress movement anything that four to floor can really help balance them out get them back to feeling good and get ready to run so check it out it's purina's four to flora boom very good Thank you for for that. So just to recap a little bit, it's still the dog's decision in their brain. You're just rewarding and giving them the ultimate reward of the retrieve when it's done the way you want. And you're you're outpatient the dog, if that makes sense to people. Yeah. Um so yes, it's sometimes now I do I do put pressures on the dog. I right. think that um no there's no complete and uh, behavior's not complete or a command's not complete unless three things happen. One, for me, ideally, the best performance comes when he's internally motivated to perform the behavior. Your retriever's got to want to retrieve. You could take a dog that really doesn't want to retrieve and you could force fetch him and he could retrieve ducks that he found or you could make him go hunt one, but he's never going to be the dog that he would be if he wanted to retrieve. Right. So it's got to be, the behavior has to be internally motivated. Then externally, I use positive reinforcement to reinforce. And the definition of reinforce is it makes is it's making the behavior stronger. So I want to make the behavior stronger by adding something, whether it's the bird, it's a treat with a pup, um, or it's a tug or a retrieve. Then I teach negative reinforcement for that same behavior so that think about retrieving i'm gonna come to me recall first the pup comes to me because you know i feed him he lives with me they're pack animals at some level they want to be with us they know us so he goes for a walk he wants to be with us so that kind of motivates the recall but then i teach him a command here and i give him a treat when he comes in here and i give him a treat when he comes in but even though he comes very quickly and very reliably in the field with nothing going on I wouldn't go out and bet his life that he's going to come when I called him just because he wants to be with me or just because he'll come for a cookie. So I teach come to me to turn pressure off. And when they learn that negative reinforcement, whatever they're doing when pressure stops is they're more likely to do in the future. So now it's, we have three layers. He wants to do it naturally. It's internally motivated. He externally, it's been reinforced positively. Then it's been forced. I call it forced. Negative. I don't say negative reinforcement. I just say forced. I say yeah. create compulsion. There you go. Um, and then I have some way to correct if he won't. I. But that's the very end stage. I think what happens sometimes is we do the little bit of play game. Then we go directly to the correction if they don't do it. But if we build the other. So everything I teach the dog. I want him to be able to do it at a distance. I want him to be able to do it off leash. I want him to be able to do it under distraction. And I teach internally motivated, 
add positive reinforcement than I teach negative reinforcement. Some pressure response. Very good. Very cool. Let's dig into the Pup and Up program now. Um, again, I I think it is one of the best descriptions of raising a puppy in a positive way, in a way where the dog has tons and tons of confidence. And what what you take to the next level that I find is the science part is at such a young age. And maybe you can break down real quick for folks like the de- the the developmental stages of the puppy um, yeah. and what's why it's important to not let those things slip. Um, I'm going to write a note too while you're doing it. So let it okay. rip on the development and then the things that you're asking that puppy to do. Okay. First, uh, the program is titled Retriever from the Pup Up. And you can find it on my website. It's push pull traininganddrive.com or you could look for my name patnolan.com and from the pup up and the basis for the course is to to build the retriever from the pup up it's not a race it, it you know it's not a race to get more repetitions like sit I started sit at seven weeks. So now that he's 12 weeks, I have 75 repetitions on sit. Because if somebody wants to work extra half hour a day, you know, they can catch up in no time. It's, it's, it's not a race to get more reps. But there's some really important reasons to do these work early. And then the one of the main reasons is that the there's a lot of information out now in studying on the executive functions in a human being and in a dog that there's um, the executive functions are, uh, there's a list of them. They had the a working memory, a mental flexibility, the ability to juggle tasks back and forth, then attention, focus, and self-control. Now, There have been many studies and test research projects in the last 20 years or more that have shown that well-developed executive function skills in a human being are a better predictor of success in life than a high IQ. Now we've, they always put a big emphasis on IQ when I was a kid, you know, the smart people, the smart people, but they, it, it, it like a retriever, it doesn't matter how much your dog wants to retrieve if he has no working memory. So, oh God, I want to get those birds. But if he doesn't have the ability to retain in his brain while he's hunting this one, when he's done with that, remember where that one is, definition of some definition of some piece of working memory there. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't have the mental flexibility to say, okay, you threw these marks. Now we're done picking those marks up. Come here. Let's run blind past that to be able to switch very quickly from one task to the next. In the marking, he's pretty much on his own. We want to select the order, but we want him working independently on the marks. We don't want him out there asking, hey, boss, tell me where the bird is. We cut him loose. You want him to go get it, bring it back. But then we come, okay, now come here, sit down. You forget all those rules. There's new rules for this task. You do exactly what I tell you. Ignore your nose. Go here, go there. Now I'll put you on the bird. So that mental flexibility to be able to switch from task to task, 
to juggle the rules from one task while you're doing it to another set of rules. And then the uh, attention, focus, and self-control. If they don't have self-control, he can't honor off <laughs> He can't sit while they shoot those close marks, can he? I mean, you know, ah, I got to have them all. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's a high drive dog. We see that. And sometimes it's a dog with lots of desire. But some very, some very powerful retrievers know to wait. So it's not just that, oh, this dog wants anybody else. He just doesn't have the self-control or they hadn't been trained to stay one of the two. But attention, focus, and self-control. They have to be able to pay attention to the important things here. They're going to throw these marks, pay attention to me, focus on this task, and then the self-control to wait. There was a, these things, humans and dogs are not born with these fully developed. These mental skills were born with the ability to develop them. Mm-hmm. And the early experiences are the strongest inroad to making positive changes there. The, there was a test done in 1972 called the marshmallow test. You may have seen it or seen some, some studies on it. They give children, they say, put a little child in a room with a camera and they say, here, I'm going to put a marshmallow here. You can eat it if you want, but if you wait until I come back, I'll give you another marshmallow and you'll have two. So you can eat this one or you could wait till I come back and have two. And they've done a lot of studies tracking those children since 1972. The child that could wait, the children that could wait as a whole, as a group, they had higher incomes, they had fewer divorces, fewer alcoholism, fewer jail times. I mean, so many metrics that we measure a successful life, happy, healthy, commitment, you know, successful work. They were, they were better off. Now, the beauty of it, and it's not set in stone. So if your child fails this, the marshmallow <laughs> test tonight, don't You're get rid of it. <laughs> you know, people often say dog training is just like raising children. And, and I would say, yeah, but if you don't like the way your dog turns out, you can get another one. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And uh, the corollary, you know, so, but the marshmallow test with children, they also found they can teach them to wait. You can change that outcome and the so so the puppy from the pup up we use these different exercises that call on skills that the dog is going to need as a working retriever but while we're teaching those skills we're trying to develop functions you know just like the little pup on the dixie cup when they thrash around no 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 relax and then go boom we when i first started training retrievers this is maybe we're going sideways here when i first started training when i first started training retrievers we would you know i taught them to retrieve i taught them force fetch we'd throw singles and when he was 14 15 months old we might start trying to throw some doubles and then when he was two years old we might start trying to teach him to handle well, those things kind of changed over time, you know, but when I have introduced multiple marks to adult dogs, I've struggled to teach some of them to, to go for that memory bird. Either they weren't confident to go, they didn't know where to go, or they just, you know, they're kind of blank. What, what do you mean? And yet 
with the puppies, I've never tried to do multiple targeting with a puppy at eight, nine weeks. They wouldn't do a triple. Now, um, so we can turn that on, working memory. We can start probing that, calling on that, eliciting it, and strengthening it. Um, so while they, the course is designed with using retriever skills that directly correlate to the work that the retriever will do as an adult, you know, we get them to target. How often do I mean when I love it when I sit down for the blinds, I guess there's two ways to do blinds. Maybe one is strictly, maybe three ways. One is strictly go as sent. And if it's only go as sent, I don't want him to have any idea where he's going. I just line him up, sit down. Don't deviate from the line I give you. I don't think there are many people that do just go as sent anymore. Another way is all destination. If it's only destination, well, we don't teach him any rules. As long as he gets to the right spot, I don't care how he gets there. Well, you can't finish many blinds in, in competitions if they don't take the water and route, or if they go around the gun instead of in front of the gun. So we need a combination of go ascent and destination training. But when I'm sitting down and line the dog out, I love it when he looks out and says, oh, I bet there's a bird out there. Come here, here, here. He said, oh, it's over there. And he's picking out targets mm -hmm. and believing that there's something there. We can practice that from the little bitty puppy. Pick out a target and know there's something there and run to it. Mm -hmm. So these skills, it's, it is working on the executive functions, developing the executive functions, but it's directly applicable applicable, applicable skills that a retriever needs that we use to teach those and develop those. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, so the targeting, you, you quickly mentioned it with the Dixie cups. You basically fashioned, I'll be interested to hear about, cause it, when you did the video, you're like, this is the, I think you said it was the first time that you put pheasant feathers in the canister. Yeah. And I'm like, dang, that's pretty smart, right? You're just pairing something that he's going to like later with the food now and he's searching for that pairing the two. So I think it's a great idea with the explain the Dixie cups and how you're addressing that into field skills. If you will, I can see it cause I've watched the program, but sure. someone who just give them a little tickle. So they still want to go and get it. <laughs> sure. When, and we, I call it Dixie cup drills. Because when I first started, I used Dixie cups. I don't use Dixie cups. The dogs, when they run out, if they eat the treat, they bat the cup around, then they're chasing the cup and or carrying it. So I use something that's obvious for them to see. And typically I use something white and heavy. Now I put a, a treat on the little cup and I hold the puppy back six inches. I let him see me put the treat. And I say a treat, but often I'm just using his daily ration. Mm -hmm. he's eating four cups a day. Let's work through four cups. And, and if I, I don't starve him, if he's, if he only gets three cups through the training, I give him the extra cup at the end of the day. I make sure that he gets his diet, but I use as much of it as I can in training. Cool. Um, so I put food on the cup and I back him up six inches and I let him go and he runs to the cup and eats it. And when he's done eating, I make some noise, bup, 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 bup. And he turns around and I give him a treat for coming back to me. Mm -hmm. So now, I start backing up further and further and the cup 
becomes a stimulus picture for the dog. He knows I can get paid there. And after he's done eating the treat on the cup, I call him up, 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 and he turns and runs here. And now he's running back and you get these fantastic recalls. The best recalls I ever got was when I started teaching pups to run away. And uh, it was a, so we set the treat down. I walked further and we, at the beginning, I just back straight up. Soon we're going to walk away from it. Now he's sitting down and he looks out and he picks out that target. You can see him lock on it. You don't just drop him, just, you know, you just walk away and let him go. And he searches it, but you wait and you see him lock on. There it is. And I started cueing him. Good. Mm-hmm. Back. And then they race out. And within a week or 10 days, I get going the length of the kitchen or the hallway. And now I'm going to do two of them. So I want to make it one rule for training for all my training in life is I want to when I'm trying to initiate behavior or training anything, I make it in the beginning, make it as easy as possible to do the right thing. Almost impossible to do the wrong thing, but then gradually and continually make it more and more inviting to do the wrong thing and harder and harder to do the right thing. That way in the end, we end up with a dog that does the right thing when it's the hard thing. We can't always stay at making it easy to do because they don't put birds where dogs want to go. They put the birds where the dogs don't want to go. That's right. But, but to get him to succeed at the task I want, pick out tar- that target, know there's something there for you, run to it and get paid, then come back. Now, to do two of them, I put them in a line and I stand in the middle. So we walk out to 12 o'clock and put a treat. Then we walk back to six o'clock and put a treat. Now I walk out to the middle of the clock and he's facing six o'clock and he says, let go, let go. I want to go. And he relaxes. Good. Go. And he races out, gets his treat. Now, even if he tries to get to the other one, I'm between him and the cup. I can catch him and pay him, turn around and he sees it. Good. Go. And he runs very quickly. You can do two or three of these now and not just one, but two or three. And so that's calling on the memory. And the targeting, once they get in the habit, this habit, race out, grab something, race back, get paid, turn around, race out again. This helps on multiple marks and multiple blinds. Yep, It's building that pattern. I could not do bumper retrieves with the seven-week-old puppy and do six, eight, maybe 10 little lining to bumpers. He doesn't have it in him. But I can line him to six or eight treats this morning. And then take a break. The puppies, it's at one hand, it seems like a lot of work on the other. Each little session might be only two or three minutes. Exactly. So you might do two or three minutes on Dixie cups, two or three minutes on casting, two or three minutes on obedience. So if you spend five sessions and it's three minutes a piece separated over the course of an hour, you wouldn't do it all at once. You only have got 15 minutes training in the puppy for the day, but yet he's, Man, it's just, it's expanding and it's explosive growth in the brain. Absolutely. Um, One of the things I'd like to discuss with you in the topic of waiting till this puppy stops wriggling, they relax and send them. For me, it makes a ton of sense. And we're creating that long-term effect of when I'm relaxed, I get what I want. 
you you touched on it also with dogs that they have to have the innate desire one of the re- things they had to have three i believe one of them was they they've got to want to do it i think what i would like to discuss is what some puppies don't they all want the treats so the targeting in the dixie cup is clutch for that because food is their number one driver in the beginning but when we're trying to build retrieve drive and get that light bulb to click I think some folks steady puppies up too soon that shouldn't have been steadied. And then other people let them be wild children and should have put more control on it. And so can you kind of talk about that in, you know, scenario for folks and how you would develop those two different kinds? Sure. Uh, One, if we, if the pup is learning for himself or herself, when I wait, I get to go. It's that does not diminish drive at all. That doesn't diminish drive to go. If we steady them with force and correction, that can diminish the excitement, enthusiasm for the for this activity, because it says, you know, we start off with a butt whooping, <laughs> right. you know, and let's go to a party. But first, I'm going to whoop your butt, and and you know, it, I'm being silly there, but it almost becomes like a a signal. They get excited. We correct them. And then we send them, they get excited. We correct them. And then we send them. So he says, okay, I just got to put up with this and then I'm going to get to go. But if he's tough, he puts up with it like that. But if they're sensitive and we're putting correction on them and they don't understand, they don't know, they don't make that jump. Then we're diminishing drive. And, um, but you don't think, so again, I'm kind of like, I'm trying to juggle this because, me and you have the luxury of of un- understanding researching pedigrees and and some folks you know i don't know i'm trying to be careful because i don't want to belittle someone else's knowledge of how to look up a pedigree and figure out what a great puppy is right but but we have i will i will pay whatever to get the creme de la creme if i'm going to own it and train it and do it so I have the deck stacked in my favor that this puppy's going to have a lot of these innate desires just built into them. And not everyone is as fortunate. And maybe we've got to build that confidence, build that retrieve drive. And so if that's the case, would you would you do more play and allow them that freebie, that fun bumper style? Or would you still say, once the like, how would you do it? When the light bulb clicks, now let's start asking a little more and sh- shaping it. When, um, uh, let's see, to build retrieve drive, to build drive, whether it's a young pup or a four-month-old dog or a six-month-old dog, uh, I don't restrain them. You know, I might hold them back a little bit while you're teasing. Mm-hmm. Restraint produces desire, you know, when he yeah. says, yeah, I got to get it, but I don't make him steady. I just restrain him and hold him back. Somebody's teasing him and then you throw it or you throw the ball. Um so, yes, no, I wouldn't steady the pup when I'm trying to build that fire there. But uh, I might teach him when we're throwing marks. I'm not trying to build the fire when I'm throwing marks. I'm just trying to use the fire he has. So I might not steady him, but I might just hold that puppy if they're sensitive. So, yes, I have trained some dogs that they were two years old and doing water blinds and stuff before I really said, you have to sit on your own. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't let those dogs break when we were throwing marks. I might have cued them by holding the leash tight, or I might have cued them by holding on the collar, and they just had to sit still. But I didn't put that burden on them mentally. I did the thinking for them. They're held tight, so you have to sit still here. And I didn't let them practice being wild, but I didn't make them have to be steady. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So for um, yeah. So I I might I there's three steps for me to steadying the dog. One, I hold him on a tight line, and if I'm just going to take a dog and start start studying him, I hold right. him on a tight line. He has to understand sit. And I say sit and he's restrained while they're throwing the marks. And then while they're down, I say sit. And he's as long as he sits still for me, I just let him go, buddy. And he goes, but he's restrained the whole time on a tight line. Mm-hmm. When he's steady and calms down, when he's processing that and he says, okay, in this situation, I don't thrash around. I sit still, but I'm still holding him. I'm, you know, I'm telling him sit still. That mm-hmm. tight line says, do you have to sit still here? The next step I do is I hold the line tight while they're throwing the marks, sit, and the line's tight, and the line's telling him to sit, and he can't move. I'm I'm telling him he can't move. And then after the marks are down, I repeat the command, sit, and I go slack in the leash. And some of them try to break, but no, no, sit, boom, you have to sit now on the slack line. So it's not at first sit while they're throwing, but sit after they're down. And then I release him. And then the third step is slack line when they're thrown and when I release him. So that's kind of a step-by-step, but um, I don't put the burden, a mental burden to stay, or I will correct you uh, on a dog that I'm trying to build drive on. Yep. I just restrain that dog. Okay. Yeah. Um, Thank you. I I agree with that. I agree. I'm a bit of a proponent or I am a proponent of, fun bumpers are you for them or against them oh yeah i'm very much for them or fun bumpers i uh you know i tug with my retrievers i know yeah that that's funny to me but it makes sense with your background right yeah i some people are aghast at it Uh, i don't tug with birds and once when i make a joke when someone asks me why do you do that well i said well my dogs are smart enough to know the difference between a bumper and a bird. <laughs> I mean, I tug with a bumper. I don't tug with a bird. And yeah. and I teach them a cue. I don't let them start the tug. When they come back, and they'll make mistakes, but the, the cue is when they come back, if I have them sit, they need to deliver the hand. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say out, and they have to let go. But if they come in and they're running in and I grab the bumper and they're still standing up, that's party on, you know, then it's cute. Let's go. And they, they'll want to tug or I mark it when he lets go out and I say, okay. And he jumps up and grabs the bumper and that's a cue. We can start the tug. He doesn't get to initiate the tug. I do. Gotcha. And it's just a rule. Um, mm-hmm. The, at some point we want to get back to you asked about um, the, the critical periods in the pup. And yeah. I skipped over it. I started talking about why, what we're trying to develop in the pup. And I didn't mean to sidetrack it, but at some point we'll talk about that if you're. Yeah, absolutely. If you're, yeah, yeah. Um, can Go ahead. I want to throw one thing out. I'm sorry. This yeah, is go ahead. Um, the way to directly connect the behavior with the reward. If we think about 
I like to teach a dog to sit. I teach my dogs to go on to, to a table. When I collar condition, the very first day I teach them to come to me in response to pressure and go away from me in response to pressure. Now, I can't force him to a pile if it's the first day of training because he doesn't know how to pick stuff up, not, not reliably or not in response to pressure. Mm-hmm. But I, I teach a table. So it's come to me, then go to the table. The table is very clear objective. He knows exactly where to do, where to go, what to do. When he's learning to come to me and go to the table, uh, Bob, I forgot why I started that story. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Where was I going? Um, <laughs> what was I saying here? So um, I'm about connecting. Ah, uh, behavior with te- reward. Right, right, right. Yes. There we go. So okay. we were talking about fun bumpers and things yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> thank you, Kevin. Yes, Keep me on track. So he goes to the table. If I'm right next to him, I can give him the fun bumper as soon as he gets on the table. Mm-hmm. Right. Or if I can give him a treat as soon as he gets on the table. If I start backing up and now I'm sending him to the table, six feet, 10 feet, 15 feet. When he runs to the table and jumps, he turns around and looks at me. Are you going to feed me now? I reach in my pocket to get a treat. And he runs off the table to get the treat. The closest behavior to getting the treat was racing to me, not going to the table. And the thing that predicted the treat was coming was my hand going in the bag. Right. It wasn't his behavior. So he starts paying a lot of attention to my hands. He's watching your hands. Is he going in the bag? Plus, he knows he can't make me put my hand in the bag. He's connecting the reward with my hand going in the bag and connecting it with coming in faster. So it's less and less there. If we use a conditioned reinforcer, like a clicker, I don't use a clicker in field work because they can't hear it very far away. And I've got a bumper and a leash and a string and, you know, all kinds of stuff from transmitter and, and sometimes a radio to talk to your helper. So I, Clicker is one more thing I can't handle. So I use a whistle that I can keep in my mouth or I just use my mouth. Okay. But if you, the clicker, if you look at a clicker, it's click and you give them a treat, click and you give them a treat, click and you give them a treat. Soon when you click, they get all excited Yep. because the brain has made the connection between the click and the treat. Um, Pavlov's dog. You've heard about this Russian scientist, Ivan Pavlov. Yep. So if you, Ring a bell. He used a metronome. But if you ring a bell and bring food, the dog's untrained. Let's back up. Untrained dog in the kennel. He sees the food pan coming. He starts salivating to get ready to digest the food. So he sees the food pan coming. He starts salivating. Now, the untrained dog, separate from feeding time, you ring a bell, nothing happens. They just look around. What was that? But if you ring the bell and bring the food, ring the bell and bring the food soon, 10, 15 times. When you ring the bell, he starts salivating because he knows it predicts or he anticipates the food is coming after that. Mm -hmm. So the same with that marker, click and treat, click and treat the click. They start responding the same way they would to the treat. So I use a marker. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they respond the way they would to, okay. And throw the bumper. Okay. And throw the bumper. Now they respond to the cue like they would to the bumper. Right. The way that helps us is when I'm backing up from that table and I'm sending him to the table and he runs and jumps on the table, I say, okay, 
boom. And it gets a flood of chemicals in the brain, in the pleasure center and memory centers of the brain. And then he races in and I can throw him a fun bumper. Now, the behavior that was most, the strongest reinforcement was on getting on the table, not on coming to me. So we use a marker to connect their actions with a reward. So I love fun bumpers, but when I first tried to change my training, my, my dogs were kind of down, you know, I said, well, let me perk them up. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd stop training and I'd throw some bumpers or I would throw some bumpers first and then I'd train a little bit and I'd stop and I'd throw some bumpers. And it was kind of sandwiching work yeah. in between these fun bumpers. Right. But, and some it helped, but the performance, the behaviors I was asking for were not directly connected to the bumpers. So when I started using a marker, so and then I started just throwing them around randomly in training. Right. But even then, it wasn't directly connected to specific behavior. But when we use a condition secondary reinforcer or a reward marker, like, okay, and then throw the bumper. Whenever I sit on train, I throw the bumper. You say, okay, and my dogs jump like, whoa, you know, it's like a flyer went off. Right. And it directly connects whatever they're doing when they hear it. And they believe it connects that with the bumper. And they believe they made it happen by their That's active right. action. So I think, again, the, the retriever from the pup and up really shows this process. You know, I, my brain gets spinning because I'm... I'm a doer, not as much of a reader. So a lot of what I've learned is just hands-on and then, you know, I guess I have read every book and DVD and stuff because I do love it. But, you know, some of people talk about the training quadrants and positive, negative, positive, that stuff goes right over my head. I know how to get a dog to feel good and what makes them feel good. How do I, and so I'm shaping the behavior and then rewarding that, I say good. So, but it's like a good, you know, and boom, he looks at me, he's fired up. So today we were monkeying with six month old puppies jumping on a dog stand, you know, like a place board, just like your, your thing. And we were sort of beginning this. They already have done it with treats. They were aware of what I'm asking of them, but this is a new place board. It's bigger and in a new, new location. And so they were not as excited if you will to jump on it they're like "Mm, i don't know what this is it's not mine at home so we pulled out the bumper we pulled out a few treats after two two quick showing them with the treats i put the treats away and i started rewarding with the bumper and just kind of i was patient with them they jump on it good boom paid them right and so i all of a sudden they'd return with the retrieve and they would jump on the thing already i'm like okay this is cool we're good now bring it to me 15 feet away or 10 feet away or five i probably was more like i started at five feet away bring it to me i take it let's let his little wheels turn how do i get paid jump on that thing good boom toss them and pay them um and it was so fun watching these little dudes go in a new location new place board and using the bumper as the as the reward to get him to start making decisions on how do I figure this out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really cool. 
Hey, LoneDuckOutfitters.com is another great way to support the show. If you want to get a hat, you want to get a little swaggy swag, check it out, LoneDuckOutfitters.com. That's another place you can support the show and show up to a hunt test repping the gear. And he's he is engaged in the training process. Training is not happening to him. Yeah. It's not do this, do this, do this. It's not happening to him. It's He's making it happen too. Yeah. Um, he's actively engaged in the training process. So that with that example, how would you go about working on heel? Because and I'm going to ask it because you have the dual backgrounds of protection sports where heads looking straight up at you. Um, I, I would imagine you would think this as well for the retrievers. We don't necessarily want that because I want them looking out. But how are we rewarding or marking the reward or using the bumper to drive them into making good decisions at heel walking to the line? You know, they know that once yeah. I get to the line, I'm getting my stuff. Yeah. Um, a couple things. I, I was very early into protection sports. And after that, it was um, working dogs, police dogs and more recently, it's all been military dogs. Um, not all, but 98% of, of my trainers with military dogs. Um, we're training dogs at home for retriever competitions, but those are own personal dogs. But my work is primarily with military dogs. But when a dog is healing, a working dog is healing, I don't want them staring up at me or at their handler. They, As you say, they need to be situationally aware looking out there, just like the retriever going to the line or walking into the field. I don't want him staring up at me. So... Um, I teach him, well, first I'd give him like a six foot circle, basically. And when he goes outside the six foot circle, I can use the bump on a leash or the e-collar. He goes outside the circle. I change directions, boom, boom. And he comes into the circle and I could give him a treat. Mm -hmm. So now two things, when he goes outside the circle, pressure starts. When he comes back in, pressure stops and the party begins. Mm -hmm. And then when he understands that and he stay within six foot, then I just start honing that circle down to, he says, you know, four foot circle, then a two foot circle. So he has to stay. Now he has to walk on a slack leash with me. Mm -hmm. And if he charges up in front, you can go the other way. Yep. Bump, bump, bump. And he, so he, I put the burden on him to watch me instead of heel, 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 heel with the leash. I try to put the burden on him that he has to watch me to stay with the slack line. And it is difficult uh, when he knows it's, you know, this big maximum reward is the mat right up there. He says, yep. I mean, you know, that not that, that the reward is maximum mat reward. I'm sorry, not that the mat is a maximum reward, but he knows the best things in life happen when I get to the mat. That's right. So the healing to get up there is difficult. I wouldn't try to teach him to heal on the way to the mat. I try to teach him to heal outside of that. Yep. Then you'd heal up and make it a little more enticing and distracting. And then finally, you know, you, you make it as flyers and the mat and everything. Uh, mats are good and bad in training. Uh, if you use them all the time, if you're, if your testing program uses them all the time, I still might only use them half the time or a third of the time. I want him to know where it is, but I don't want him to try to beat me up there. Right. Exactly. It's, I don't use them that often. And I feel like it's for that reason. You know, I can walk one dog to the line beautifully. Like he's a stallion, freaking awesome. 
as soon as you put them in a holding blind and have them be patient and you say, here, heel, set, that's when it triggers, right? I just did yeah. A plus B equals C, and now I'm about to go to the line. And yeah. it, it sends him into a tizzy. He can walk. If there's no holding blind and no nothing, we walk beautifully. And so he's learned in in the years of doing this game that I can be calm and cool and collected. He can lay it down and sleep in that holding blind, but then bang, it goes to level 10. And so it's, it's a interesting thing. And so to combat that, I've been asking him to do 10 more things before we even go to the line. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just to try oh, and yeah. break the, the habit. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of things kind of pile up, of course. One, um, if they say guns up 14 to the line, and yeah. we step out right away. Guns up, 14 to the line, we step out. Soon, as soon as they say guns up, they're jumping out of their skin because he knows where he's going up. Yep. So when they call me, I never go right away. You know, they call me, I wait, I pause. I try to separate that from here. So he knows it's going to start, but it doesn't start till I say it starts, not when they call us. The other is at some level, I moderate the amount of time they spend off the collar in those situations because there was a time the the most trials I ever ran in a year was 25 trials that was a year we ran in the U.S. and Canada and my wife wisely said that's too much Mm -hmm. and so I started cutting back and I would run three trials in a row and take one week off and so I'd get two weeks training break in there then Later on in my career, I started looking at the the schedule and I would only run two trials in a row and then take a week off. So when I take a weekend off, that gives me two full weeks of training before I get my two trials. And, you know, it's not two trials like back to back Friday through Sunday and then Monday through Tuesday. You know, there's a week of training in between or a couple of days of training. You might have travel there, travel back and two and a half days of training or something. But um, anyway, uh, so by running two trials on, taking one weekend off, it gives me time to recover, um, gives me time to get more time with the dog. I tried not to make a black and white point with the dog that the rules are different on the weekend. I tried to run my, I didn't like when I was running a, the hunt test. I didn't like to run the junior when they were ready for the junior mm-hmm. because the cheap, often the marks were kind of cheaty. And I think sometimes they weren't purposely doing that. They said, well, let's make it easier for them. Let's put it closer to the shore over here, you know, and uh, yeah, let's yeah. just have them cut this corner because we don't want to make a long swim. Let's cut this corner. And, and they end up challenging the pups with some pretty cheaty stuff. So I would wait till my dog was running senior or ready for senior before I would put him in the junior and ready for master before I put him in the senior. And then there's some hard choices. If the dog is going to slip a little bit and get a bird, I'm going to accept that maybe, but if they're coming, they're going to run around a piece of water and get a bird say, well, I let him get it. I could get a ribbon, but then I pay a penalty for the rest of his life, but he's learning Saturday, the rules are different. Yep. The ribbon's not worth that, that experience for him. So I certain, I tried to make sure they didn't get birds on the weekend for stuff that was flagrant. 
Yep. You know, he goes out of control on a water blind. I do everything I can to get him picked up before he gets a bird. Cause I don't want him to go ape, run around on shore, run down there and charge and get a bird. Cause sure as heck, you'll see more of that behavior. That's right. So uh, I try to pick him up. If, if I can't get him to the blind, I want to pick him up. I don't want him to get it out of control. Um, and then, you know, at some real extreme, say maybe you've been working on jumping a log all week in training. And you get to the trial and there's a log on the way to the short retired. Say, oh, man, I got this. Mm-hmm. And he comes in, he looks right at the log, says he wants me to jump that log. And you send him, he runs around it. That's not a situation that I would normally handle or pick him up. But if I just been making a point all week about we're going to take logs on the way. And then by some freak coincidence, there's a log very blatantly on the way to this bird. And he says, I'm going to run around it. I'm not going to let him do it now. If I hadn't been making a point all week about it, I might let him run around that and get it because, you know, these things happen and and it's okay. But I wouldn't want him to contrast that. I don't take logs on Saturday, but I have to take them on Tuesday. If I have a problem during the week, I don't go home and like fight it out on Monday. Right. You know, I had a bad water blind. I had a bad water blind. You know, I'll try to get in some training on that Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't like drive off the ground, put a collar on and try to get a correction. I'm not saying you do, but I mean, no, I, I, I don't yeah. want to, I'm, I don't want to paint a black and white picture for him that the rules are different on the weekend. Right. Makes complete sense. Um, let's talk about, so we, we, I'm backtracking to the Dixie cups and targeting. You walked us through that. Now let's talk about transitioning that into you know, how you feel like it transitions into T pattern. I don't know if you do double T or not. Um, I personally don't. So I would, if you do, then you tell me why. And then pattern blinds, like how do you transition T pattern to blinds and, and create that good targeting, good, confident looking out good. When I say good, you're, you're aiming right at it. Mm-hmm. Well, when, when they finished this, the pup up program. And um, let me say that I'm editing video right now to show those next steps. Cool. So we will very soon have a uh, trained retrieve or a force fetch and collar conditioning, and then single T double T and swim by. And I don't often do double T and I'll do part of it kind of a thing. And I'll, like I might do the long overs one day and the short overs the next but I don't often put out the whole double T and, and grind away on that. Um, but how do we transition when the puppy is uh, four to seven months old, you know, they start, they begin to stop coming back with the bird, you know, he'll run out and I continue to throw marks for the puppy and we're using the program. We're using a food treat to pay the dog for coming back, not to mm-hmm. reward him for going to retrieve. If he's going to retrieve a bird because I have a treat for him, he's not the dog for this job. Um, He's going to get the bird because he wants it. And the food retreat treat is trying to build the habit of coming back. Mm -hmm. At some point he says, you know, I really want this bird and I don't want to give it up. And they'll, they won't come back anymore. When they show that I collar condition them, Mm -hmm. come here, go to the table. And from that collar conditioning, come here, go to the table. I'm starting. I'm casting. Now we cast to pallets with the puppies. Mm -hmm. And now I'm 
forcing with a collar to go to the table, mark and pay with a retrieve. Mm -hmm. We separate the action going to the table from the retrieve, but we use the retrieve to pay it off. So I'm teaching remote sit on the table, sit on the recall, casting left and right and left and right backs in my collar conditioning right from the very beginning. We've had a couple of weeks of that. We go ahead and force fetch him. By the time I get him force fetched, most of the time I'm doing a single T to three tables. So we put a table out, you send him to it. Then we send him and stop him and cast over to this table, just like the regular single T. But so, you know, a couple of weeks into his obedience, we, we could do in a T drill to cool. tables. And then as soon as he's force fetched, we do T with bumpers there. Mm-hmm. And I don't do pattern blinds per se. If by pattern blinds, uh, you mean we put out three or five or seven or whatever, we put out a set of blinds in one field that I'm going to run the same ones every day. And once they know them, I might change the order or put out a diversion, but I'm going to run those same blinds every day. When I think of a pattern, I think that's on the ground and they can learn a lot from the patterns, uh, but instead of a pattern on the gr- ground, I teach them a template up here. So I teach like three equidistant blinds, and I walk the dog out with me. I use walkout blinds. Okay. So I walk him out and drop, boom, 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 and I put two at each target, and I come back and I send him, and I want him long enough that he's not going to line them. I might get a handler three and then on the repeat, he does better. So I, I always do a, a set three, one, two, three, throw a mark off the side and then repeat them. One, two, three. Tomorrow I'll do the same template, but in a different spot. So I do walkout blinds every day in a different spot mm-hmm. and instead of pattern blinds. Got and you. I'm walking out to a cone or to a, blind marker and dropping bumpers. The dog walks out with me. I drop the bumpers. So he knows they're out there, but he doesn't know exactly where they are. The thing that I think it gives me over the way I, the reason I like it instead of pattern blinds is he's handling to a new spot every day, mm-hmm. three new spots every day. Yeah. And it's, it's not, you know, I, you do it. It builds confidence because you walk out and prove to him there's something there. Sure. Or, and so, I get my handling. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. They yeah, they no, ha- no. from the Dixie Cups. They've been going towards white markers and being paid there with food mm-hmm. bumpers. Are you are what are your markers looking like for these you know blind posts that you're walking them out to, or don't you? Yeah, actually, I don't think it matters. Um, I, if you if you look further into the program. With that little pup we used there, he was lining to cups. Then mm-hmm. we started, we put the cups at an orange traffic cone. Mm-hmm. And so he can see, they can kind of see that shape. And we all know that they can see, recognize the shapes, but they don't really see orange well, unless the sun hits it just right. So now he starts seeing the shape of the orange cone and he knows it's a sight picture. It's a stimulus picture. He knows, oh, I can get paid there. Mm-hmm. And, and I use cones because... Uh, for the, I do a lot of directional work with this 
military dogs and much of it happens in a town or something. And it's hard to put a blind marker in, in the blacktop mm-hmm. or in the concrete sidewalk, you know, so we can set an orange traffic cone. And so instead of a blind stake, I use a traffic cone. And when I was staying home, when I stopped running field trials, a couple of years, I stayed home. We go south again now. So I love that. But when I stayed home in Maryland, the ground was too hard. You couldn't put a blind marker there in December, you know, you'd, so, but you could set an orange cone out. Yep. So I don't think it matters what you use, um, but I do put some kind of marker that he can see. And I, I do some with white, but, but very often I'm much, I want to make it very obvious, but not white. Gotcha. Cool. Go ahead. So the same skills, I'm sorry, the same skills, lining, targeting, casting, coming when we call them, the obedience. We teach those same skills, but then we teach them in addition to positive reinforcement. Now we teach, I call it a pressure response for everyone. When I say here and he feels the collar, he knows he can turn the collar off by coming. Mm -hmm. When I say back, he knows he can turn it off by going away from me. Once they learn how to turn pressure off, then they know how to avoid it in the future. Right. When he says back, I need to go that way. And because I like it, it feels better when I go that way, when he says back and then I get to retrieve. Yep. So two wonderful thing happens, happen when you go, when I tell you. That's awesome. Um, I'd like to talk about your, the military police dogs and, and that section. Uh, you, how long have you done that? How did that come about? You know, you're a field trial trainer, kicking butt, taking names, and then all of a sudden this opportunity presents itself. Walk us through that life chapter. It was a, uh, I wish I say I could say I had a plan, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't. Um, I had, when I was running trials, we were, my, I took my family south in the winter for three months. And then because we lived in Maryland, it got too hot in the summer. So we would go north in the summer. So my family was moving like south and then north and then north and then south. They were moving four times a year. Mm -hmm. And then between the moves and the field trials that I ran, I was on the road seven months a year. And um, I was trying to figure out a way to be a field trial trainer and not run field trials, you know, not, so I had assistants. I had um, one or two successful assistants that ran the trials, but even then my clients wanted us to go South in the winter. I mean, just, just the nature of the beast. Sure. You know, if you, you don't get three months water work this year, it's not a big deal, but if you add up five years, a five-year-old dog and you've had three months extra, you're talking about a year and a half extra training base. That's right in the water. And that's, so it is important to do those things. So I was trying to figure out a way to stay home. My wife, I went home and we were in South Carolina and a a friend, local friend said, he came over to visit and he said, Hey Pat, my wife's pregnant. And they were all, we were all excited for them. And I went home and told my wife, Hey, you know, Jr. and his wife are pregnant. They're expecting a baby. And she said, so are we. (laughs) And (laughs) It was our fifth child and I was 43 or 44 years old and it was our fifth child coming. And, and, uh, he asked me one time, he said, was I an accident? And I said, no. 
It's an accident when something bad happens that you weren't planning on. You were surprised. That's something good happened that you weren't planning on. So anyway, um, I realized it was just too much for my family. So I stopped running trials and I tried to figure out what am, what am I, if I'm not a retriever trainer Mm -hmm. and I finished a college degree and I was training locally gun dogs. People were coming to me to help them. So I was doing more day training Mm -hmm. and then I'd have a few gun dogs and day train, but there were some pretty lean times. And uh, when I was, because I didn't, make a big, I just sent all my customers a note said, you know, I appreciate it. I've loved working for you. Uh, but I'm not going to run field trials anymore. And Andy, my assistant, he rented my truck. He rented my place in South Carolina and we stayed home. And, uh, I started doing some demonstration work for Dogtra. They hired me to represent them at a couple of shows. And then I've had a good working relationship with Dog Tribe. I've enjoyed working for them. And I like their collars. Uh, I don't get paid to say that. I And I do use other collars too, but I, I prefer the Dog Tribe collars. They, I do some work for them because I use the collars. I don't use the collars because I work for them. There's a big difference there. Um, yeah. And, uh, but I learned to do some tricks. Because one, just boredom, you know, I wanted to learn something new. And, um, but also I was trying to figure out, you know, when, it, when I do a demonstration, when we go to these trade shows, I'd have my dog, I'd knock a water bottle over. I'd say, hey, throw that away for me. And she'd grab it and run down the hall and put it in the trash can. And, you know, just do some silly little things mm-hmm. and uh, to draw attention to the booth. So I was learning some tricks and uh, I was on some internet discussion boards and people were talking about e-collar training. I was trying to figure out well, how do people make a living if I'm not a retriever trainer? I mean, I looked into one ads because I could manage a shoe store, I guess, but you know, it's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure that I could manage a shoe store, but I thought maybe I had managerial skills, which probably shows a lack of self-awareness, but um to think that I had managerial skills, but, uh, <laughs> but um, I was looking to see what obedience people were doing. And there were some of the e-collar programs were being developed. Uh, Fred Hassan, sit means sit program. Yep. And some other people um, were doing things. Uh, and on some of the discussion boards, I was, I was polite, but direct. I mean, some people would say, oh, we condition the collar like a reward. "Mm, No, I don't think you do. And they said, well, of course we do. You just don't understand. Said, "Mm, no, I don't think you condition it like a reward. Well, of course it's a reward. When I push the button, my dog goes for the ball faster. It's a reward. I said, no. That's negative reinforcement. If it was a reward, you would push the button when he got the ball. You don't know what you're talking about. You just understand. And and so, I mean, I tried to speak a voice of reason with some people at that time that couldn't explain what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Very successful. I don't know who they are. They don't know who I am. It was on the internet years ago. Anyway, right. uh, I'm not saying that people that I'm not saying that that obedience trainers don't know what they're talking about. I'm saying at that's 
at that particular point in time, some of the people I was on discussion boards with didn't know how to explain the collar conditioning they were doing. Right. That I want to be careful. I'm not saying people don't know what they're doing. It. So, so uh, at some point in time, a military group was looking for a project and they said, they called, they said, we've been asking around. Uh, people say you like to do different stuff. They said, hey, can you teach a dog to put a package on a target from 100 meters away? And if you can, how much will it cost us and how long will it take to get ready? My 401k is looking skinny right now, so uh, let's pad that bad boy. Actually, what I said was, um, if you just want to see, I can show you tomorrow and it won't cost you anything. Um, because I'd never done it, but I knew I could do it. Sure. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> because I had taught the dog to put stuff in trash cans and mm-hmm. she would run blinds in the field. So the next morning we went out and I put an orange bucket from Home Depot up 100 yards away. And I put a camera in the middle, put a bumper in her mouth, sent her up, got her to the bucket, bucket. You put it in the bucket and came home. That's so we awesome. sent them the video and uh, and I got hired for the job. That's um, awesome. And, and then it it expanded from there. Every time I did some work, somebody else heard about it and asked about it. So it expanded from there. So, so it wasn't a great plan. Some God had a plan, but but I just saw the pieces from the back end as it was happening. You know, I, I didn't know what was going on. I'm assuming that some of the things that you've been teaching the, the dogs are, is classified. Yes. What's the coolest thing that's not classified? <laughs> the coolest thing you can talk about. Yeah. Uh, their dogs, some dogs are trained for surveillance work where the dog wears a camera and we put a, I mean, this is on the internet. You can see it on the internet. So it's not classified, right? So you put a radio on them so we can talk to them and a camera on the dog. And now you could as long as they will take your directions and you can see what the dog sees, you can walk them around through a building or through a town without being there. The dog doesn't have to see you. And that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. That's pretty that's cool. cool. So uh, what, yeah. what breeds were you working with during a lot of this process? Was it a mix between labs and shepherds and males? What, what was your go-to? Um. We, I, most of the military units I work with use Malinois um, and they do some single purpose work with Labradors, but most of the military units I work with use Malinois. And in addition to the, the uh, military work, I did several research projects that for defense contractors where I was hired to train dogs for, you know, um, for targets they'd say hey do you, can you train a dog to find this and uh, that was always fun i like problem solving trying new things some very difficult targets um that's pretty neat what is it like training a malinois that's different than a lab and what has that kind of detection work or the the secret stuff taught you into the lab world that made a light bulb go off in your head like oh this would be amazing for our our retrievers the 
um, yeah, at some level, it's just a continuation of what we learned from the Hawks at one level. You say, you know, there are times with the Labradors that we put pressure on them. I say we, I mean, as a community, as a whole, we put pressure on them because we can, not because it's the best thing for this situation. And I don't mean that there, people are intentionally mean, but I mean, you know, we can be pretty quick to go to a collar to solve a problem because they will put it up with it. The melon was, um, some of them won't put up with that. Um, you know, you might, you'd be wearing him, <laughs> you know, no, I was just going to say, um, so. or, or some of them quit. I mean, they, when they understand you can, there are plenty of Malinois that will take a lot of pressure, but you just walk in and grab a Malinois and you start banging them around with a collar and lots of them won't take it. Um, there are plenty of dogs trained successfully, plenty of Malinois, plenty of very tough dogs trained with e-collars, but um, you have to approach it a little differently. Yeah. That that's my understanding too. I mean, they're, they're either going to take, what is the word? Like they're going to have a release and it's going to be, this sucks whammy on you uh, or someone near them or shut down. So, yeah. And they, you can shut them down, overwhelm them. And you know, the, uh, we can, there are some dogs at trials where we see them, they're not in drive on their blinds. Right. They're moving very methodically. And it's okay to move methodically. It's okay to be, it's a good thing to be under control. But some of them are moving. Occasionally you see it. You used to see it more. Um, they lay their ears back on the blind and they're afraid. Right. You don't see it as much anymore. Um, but uh, the dog can't work like that and go out and look for explosives. Now the dog can go out that way and then he gets to the bird. He said, Oh, thank goodness. I found a bird and he's got it, but they won't use that same mind frame and go look for explosives. Um, normally engage a guy in a fight if that's the, the, the mental state they're in when they're going out there. So you have to keep a different frame of mind for the dog. That's a great point. One of my least favorite things to do is have a dog run a blind and look like they're afraid to make a mistake. And so, like you said, they're more methodical. Be, they sit quick on a whistle. They take your directions well. They do everything well because they don't want to make a mistake, but they just aren't enjoying the process and they aren't in drive, as you said. I guess the thought I'm having as you're describing the Malinois or detection dog, like it's life or death if they don't do what you've trained them to do for us, it's, we just fail the test and don't get a ribbon. So it's interesting. So in those instances, you're, you really are playing into, it's your idea to go out and do this and you're getting a reward. And so they're constantly staying in training and drive. Yes. And the dog can be, and again, yes, they have to train them and drive. The, the Labrador can be, under control and be methodical, but they, they can't be afraid to make mistakes. There's one rule over all my training. And that is if we want a dog fully engaged in training by that, I mean, using all their own skills 
to try to accomplish the goal that we set, whether it's a training goal or a trial goal. They're using all their own skills. They're fully engaged in the process. If we want the dog engaged in the process, we can't correct for mistakes, but we have to correct for disobedience. And sometimes the difference, knowing the difference is difficult. If they make a mistake and they get corrected by mistake, I mean, the dog's trying the best they can to come up with the right answer and they make them, they don't get the right answer. Well, if we punish them for that, they can't stop making mistakes. So the only way to avoid being punished for making mistakes is to not make choices. Right. That dog's not running and drive anymore. Now, if we don't, if he knows exactly what we want, we say, sit. And he says, you talking to me? Sit. I don't think I will. Sit, sit, sit. And we don't punish him. He doesn't, he's not going to sit anymore unless he feels like it. Because, you know, you say, well, the consequences aren't important. So we can't correct for mistakes, but we have to correct for disobedience. And sometimes the art of dog training is, that's part of the art of dog training is knowing are they, did they make a mistake? Were they trying and just came up with the wrong answer? How would you correct that mistake? And I don't mean correct as a correction. How would you correct that mistake in the field with a dog that's going through your blind retrieves, you know, slips a whistle, I guess slipping a whistle is if you know to sit, then that is not a mistake, but taking the wrong cast on accident or like, those kind of scenarios. Um, well, first, when I'm trying to teach the blinds, I have a, have you heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yes. Like there's a hierarchy of needs in a human being. You know, you want, you need safety, you need security. Then you want to feel loved. And then you want, you know, work that you feel self-actualized at your work. Well, nobody cares if they feel self-actualized at their work, if they're being shot at, you know, or they're sleeping outside in the cold. So you have to have these basic things first. Mm -hmm. So I have a hierarchy of disobedience on the blind. When first you must go. So it doesn't matter to me how fancy he stops or how fancy his casting is if he doesn't go, because you can't get him out there to show the fancy casting. you got to go. So as if I'm getting no goes or pops, I don't correct any other problems till we get that straight. Mm -hmm. Then I have to have a dog that will stop. So you must go, you must stop. And again, it doesn't matter how fast he, how well he goes. If he doesn't stop, I can change his direction. So you got to go, you got to stop. And then the third is you got to change direction. Now, in the beginning, as long as he stops and I cast and he goes somewhere over there, mm -hmm. I accept it. You know, big wide corridor of you can see my arms, you know, yeah. big wide corridor of he went anywhere in that quadrant out there when I cast here. That's acceptable. And by acceptable, I let him run as long as he's running and doesn't deviate. Mm -hmm. If he deviates, giving into a factor, I stop him right away because I want him to learn, don't give in to factors. But as long as he takes my cast and he's running, I let him go. That's rewarding to him to run because he believes he's getting closer to the bird. Yep. But gradually, I have to tighten up the corridor of what's acceptable. So gradually, I'm saying, 
okay, when I gave two o'clock and he ran to 245, he just wasn't trying. Mm-hmm. So I stop him. You know, I, I go this way. And he says, no, stop. So then I'd give him, I, you know, if he's early in training, I'd, I'd cast again. We want to go here. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. That's disobedience. When I don't correct a dog from deviating from a line on the blind. So he's going to 12 o'clock and he veers off. I just stop him and I cast him, say, go back to 12 o'clock. And he says, no, I'd stop now. I use indirect pressure. Here, sit. And after he's seated, I repeat the sit command and I bump him with a collar and then I cast him. So by not allowing him to make progress towards the blind, that's correction. I call him in a little bit, stop, and then I force on the sit. I use almost no direct punishment on blinds. Use Very indirect good. pressure. Very good. And I, I almost always call them in a little bit and stop them. It preserves momentum. You have softer dogs. You have a big, hard-going dog. He's trying to run. You get out of my way. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. He gives a cast refusal. I stop him, and I can whistle, sit, and bump him right there and then cast. But anybody that's halfway trying, when they give the cast refusal, I stopped him. I call him in just a little bit, even five or six feet. Sit, stop him again, and then I repeat the sit command and bump him while he's seated and then cast. Call him in that preserved momentum. So I always kind of looked at it from a different point of view is if I call in a little bit, I because t- let's say they're scalloping back to where they want to go. They got the idea it's over here and they keep scalloping. If mm-hmm. I call them in, I take a little momentum away in the direction they feel is right. And I get them to change direction and then build their, they get their momentum back by going the way I wanted. But if you just constantly let them keep scalloping and casting, you're never going to get it. That's correct. It may, it may, he's trying to run to 10 o'clock, trying to send him to two o'clock. It takes momentum by calling him in a little bit. It takes the momentum to 10 o'clock away. Correct. But it preserves momentum on the blinds in general. He doesn't connect it with making a mistake. It just gets better at casting. But the dog that says, I'm going to 10 o'clock. And you say, no, let's go here. He says, no, I'm going to 10 o'clock. And you stop and, and bump him on the sit. It That's over time that chips away at his momentum to go on the blind. He gets a little concerned. But by calling him in a little bit, stop and tap and then cast, it preserves blind momentum. It doesn't preserve momentum in the wrong direction. Good clarification. Thank you. Good clarification. So uh, I appreciate your time. I'd like to kind of wrap it up in terms of, again, where can people find you? Where can they? I highly, highly suggest if you're getting a puppy in the next year, if you have a puppy, if you have an older dog and want to have cool ideas of how to, to do more things with them, it's pretty dang in depth, Pat. I had to do some reading on this bad boy. Good. Good. Hey, thank you. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for, I've enjoyed the conversation. I know it's hard to keep me on a straight path sometimes, but uh, I've enjoyed the conversation. My, my material, I have 
several websites trying to wean them down to one. But you can find me at patnolan.com and you can find me at pushpulltraininginddrive.com. And there's a store there with uh, products on sale. We have Retriever from the Pup Up. We have an e-collar course there. There's a webinar about reward markers. There's a new, um, there's some new retriever courses coming up very soon. Cool. Force fetch, collar conditioning, and the, the rest of the basics. Well, maybe when basics those come, drive. yeah, what maybe when those come out, we'll we'll have you back on. We can kind of talk about that. I'll order it for me and all my employees, and we'll watch it and read it and and kind of discuss it then too. Because I, I would love to dive deeper into some of the different topics that we discussed. We kind of grazed the surface of a lot of things, but um, I also want to, I, I wanted to respect your time, but I would love to hear more about the Hawk training too. So that is, it was everything I could do not to stop and ask for more. Like, how did you catch a Hawk? Like, how did you, what, how did you get into that? Yeah, I have a million questions. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll follow up on that. Be so kind to join us again. Uh, when your course comes out, we'd love to have you back and dive more into more about you and everything. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. And I'd like to like to do that. And I hope we get to train dogs together sometime soon. We can make that happen. That'd be really cool. You're not that far from us. So no, Come well, on what we'll do everyone. We're going to link every piece of how you can find Pat in the description below. So make sure you go and do that. I appreciate everyone who tuned into this episode. Um, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. Um, leave a comment and a, anything that is helpful to us. And we appreciate everybody for tuning in to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles. Hey, if you haven't done it already, jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. If you enjoy the show and want to want to support the show, if this show has helped you and your dog grow together, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer and you get more one-on-one -on -one from me. You get content that doesn't hit Instagram or YouTube and it enters you to win a free hunt with me and Kevin in Missouri this duck season. So jump on, links in the description. We'd be happy to have you and love to help you. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.